In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In context, the parable of the prodigal son isn't really about the prodigal son. The context in which Jesus tells the parable is the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes, that tax collectors and sinners are the ones who are being drawn to Jesus, and Jesus not only received them, he honored them by eating with them. So Jesus speaks three of the most memorable parables in all of Scripture. First, he tells the parable of the lost sheep and the man who goes to find it. This parable ends with Jesus saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This parable isn't so much about the lost sheep as it is about the man who goes and finds it and the rejoicing that commences when he does find it. Next, Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin and the woman who sweeps diligently to find it. The parable ends with Jesus saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, this parable isn't so much about the lost coin as it is about the woman who sweeps for it and the rejoicing that commences when she finds it. Saving the best of the three for last, Jesus tells the parable of the last son and of the father who, contrary to all expectations, welcomes him home. This parable ends with Jesus saying, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost and is found. But like the other two parables before it, this parable isn't really about the thing that's lost, in this case a son. This parable is about the Father and the Father's amazing grace. And that the Father who receives his unworthy Son throws the greatest of all parties. Rejoicing commences. Again, in context, the point of these parables is that Jesus is overjoyed to receive tax collectors and sinners. He not only receives them, but eats with them and honors them in this way. It's a glimpse into heaven where we sinners are not only forgiven, but are honored while all the holy angels rejoice. It is only in the last of these three parables that we have an explicit figure who represents the attitude of the Pharisees. And namely, that figure is the older brother and son. Instead of rejoicing with the father and with the entire household at the return and restoration of his brother, he becomes angry and refuses to join the party. And if there is one thing we Americans can't stand, it's this kind of self-righteousness and snobbery, a holier-than-thou attitude that prevents one from doing what we all love best, which is partying. 
And so we perceive the older son to be the obvious villain, and we rush to identify with the younger son. But what often follows is a kind of perverse glorification of the younger son and of his fall from grace. And from this comes all kinds of wrong ideas. The idea, for example, that only those who have sinned in the most depraved ways can truly know the depths of God's grace. Or that only those with an outrageously bad past can preach an outrageously good gospel. But of course, such ideas would mean that Jesus himself had only a shallow understanding of the gospel. There develops in some circles a subtle or not so subtle competition in order to see which one of us can be the most prodigal. If you look for it, you'll see it everywhere. Personal testimonies are crafted, biographies are written, tattoos are carefully chosen, all to suggest the speaker's edgy and rebellious prodigality. Strangely, theological slogans like, we're all prodigals, aren't said with any sense of embarrassment or shame, but rather with a perverse kind of pride. Even the claim to be a sinner or chief of sinners is no longer said with disgust or lament, but rather as a kind of prideful boast either in one's own cool rebelliousness or one's orthodoxy, usually both. The self-proclaimed prodigal ends up looking down his nose at the older brother in the parable and at those he perceives to be the older brothers in the church. Ironically, becoming guilty of the older brother's sin himself. In identifying the older brother as the villain and ourselves as the prodigals, we fall into one of Jesus' best laid traps. In looking down our noses at the resentful older brother, we become the resentful older brother. In condemning the self-righteous Pharisee, we become the self-righteous Pharisee. In demeaning those within the church whom we perceive to be more moralistic or perhaps holier than thou, we, we show ourselves to be even more moralistic, even more holier than thou. But, tellingly, the Father in Jesus' parable exhibits no such attitude toward his oldest son. Far from judging him or condemning him, as the self-proclaimed prodigals do, the Father speaks tenderly and mercifully to him. He entreats him, the text says. And finally, coming to him, he says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The point is that Jesus' parable isn't about either son. It's not about the sinful youngest son. It's not about the self-righteous oldest son. Jesus' parable is about the father. The father who refuses to disown either son. 
He loves them both, forgives them both, speaks tenderly to both, and welcomes both of them to the feast. It's simply unnecessary to import Jesus somewhere into this parable when he is so obviously the Father, the one who loves both sinner and Pharisee, both younger son and older son. He makes no distinction. Jesus is simply the one who looks for the sheep that is lost. He sweeps for the coin that has fallen. He is the unspeakably gracious Father who loves and pursues both his sons. And so, in context, the point that Jesus is making to the Pharisees is that he receives them too. That they, just like the older brother, are also sons. They too are forgiven and welcome at his table, both now and at the great heavenly feast to come. So the way for us to hear this parable then is not to identify ourselves with one son or the other. The truth is that at different times and in different ways, we're like both. Has there been any wicked desire in you to be freed from doing your father's will? Then you've been like the younger son. Has there been any resentment in you toward another? then you've been like the older son as well. The point of the parable is that Jesus loves both his sons, and Jesus loves you. There is no sinner too filthy or too damaged, too self-righteous or too holier than thou. Jesus has come for all sinners and for sinners only. There are no sins of dissipation or habitual sins from which Jesus recoils. Just as there are no sins of pride or resentment from which Jesus recoils, Jesus has come to have all our sins laid on him. Jesus has come not to condemn any, but to give life to all. Whatever hardship he must endure to bring the sheep home, he will. Whatever labor it takes to find the coin, he will do it. Whatever loss he must endure to receive back his sons, he will gladly suffer it. And that is what the cross is all about. Whatever the cost, he would pay it and did pay it for you, and even for you only, for one sheep, for one coin, for each son, and for you. Whatever the cost, he would pay it, and the cost was the cross. So repent. That is the point of Jesus' parables. For you were lost, and now you are found. You were dead and now you are alive. Draw near to Jesus because you are forgiven. Eat at his table. You are his honored guest. While angels and archangels are rejoicing all around. As the father sees his wayward son in the distance, runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him, so your heavenly father loves you.
As the father wraps his filthy son with the best robe, puts the family ring back on his finger, and puts sandals on his feet, so your heavenly father does not merely forgive you. He restores you and blesses you and showers you with honor undeserved. As the father calls for the fattened calf to be slain and the feast to be prepared, so joy in heaven erupts over a single sinner who repents, including you. And that feast that the father held, wishing that both his sons would attend, is figured here in Holy Communion, where our Lord Jesus calls both sons, all sons, to his table. And here he still eats with sinners, giving us his own body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And this feast and this party laid out for you today is but a foretaste of that feast and party that is to come. At least, if the prophet Isaiah is correct, and if the book of Revelation is correct, and if Jesus himself is correct, then heaven is preparing to throw a party the likes of which has never been seen. But don't worry. It's not the kind of party where you're going to have to make small talk or be concerned with politeness and who's who. It's the kind of party that will feel like coming home to a home you've never had, to a family that understands you perfectly and loves you and always will. It's a party and feast of God's grace and mercy, of God's victory and salvation, of sinners great and small who have been forgiven and restored for all eternity. It is a party for tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees, all of whom our Father delights to call his sons. A party that brings to completion the whole of this epoch and world in which we who were lost have been found and we who were defeated and dead have been made alive and have been made victors. A party that not only marks the closing of the age, but the dawning of a new. Can you imagine it? You and I will stand and watch and sing as God speaks forth the new heavens and the new earth. The coming feast and party will mark not only the end of all things, but the beginning. And at the very center of this cosmic party and feast, yes, at the very center of all things, we will find our Lord Jesus, true God and yet true man, infinitely holy and powerful, and yet also meek and lowly of heart. Can you imagine what it will be like to look into your Savior's eyes, to see the scars around his brow, his nail-pierced hands and feet? There are no brighter jewels in all of heaven, for these are the marks and reminders of his wondrous love for sinners, for you and for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.